0: I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, ladies. We have a wonderful class that we're going to learn together today. I think it's very fascinating. Um. And I just want to again thank Gail Weiss for sponsoring all of these classes in Keyslave. Gail and David Weiss, muzzle tub on your anniversary. Many more years in good health together and lots of naches from the kids. And um, hi, here's my techie. Oh, just on time. Thank you. Newsflash. Oh, it's my class. Oh, phew. Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> We know that Hanukkah is coming up in two weeks. And uh, so I can't not speak about Hanukkah while we speak about the element of wind, which actually it becomes extremely relevant um, to the element of wind. Now, what is the element of wind? We're mastering all of the four elements. We said that um, many sources. Hi, Michelle, nice to see you. Many sources teach us Kabbalistic sources, the Maimonides and others tell us that the same way that the world, the entire physical world is composed of the four elements, earth, water, wind, and fire, so too is each human being composed of these four elements and that we have to um, not only conquer the Olam Gadol, the world outside of us, but even more difficult than that is to conquer or master or channel these energies within us of these four elements. So for those of you who have listened to the podcast um, far and wide, all over the world, actually, I had 85 from Ireland one day, and I thought, "What? wait a second, are there 85 Jews in Ireland? Maybe the rabbi locked all of them in the shul in one day and made them listen to the podcast. I don't know what happened. But after that, there's only been one, so... I concluded as just a one Irish Jew who's technologically uh, handicapped and pressed something 85 times. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Hello, everybody out there. And please, anybody who has questions or comments, please, uh, you can email me at vale at yahoo.ca. Okay, um, so the wind element is actually... Um, is actually the most deepest of all of the elements wind we said that earth just to review quickly, earth is that primal survival instinct that every human being has. If we think of a triangle like Abraham Maslow's a triangle of needs, this is a spiritual one. Earth is at the bottom it's our most the most physical part of ourselves. And it's the primal need to survive, okay? And we said that um, it can deteriorate into the a scarcity mindset where everybody's worried, is there gonna be enough for, every, for me? You know, will I have enough? And it breeds jealousy. It breeds small-minded thinking. And we said that Avraham and Sarah are the remedy to the earth mindset because they have the abundance mindset, sorry, the scarcity mindset. Because they had a mindset of abundance, of emuna, right? That Hashem is my sugar daddy in the sky. He can give me everything I need. I don't have to worry about somebody else taking what's for me. And, you know, this idea that that, um, I'm going to have what I need. I don't have to be jealous and worry that there's not enough. Then we said that water is the emotions, right? And we talked about the emotions, um, including pleasure pleasure and pain. And we talked about the story of the generation of the flood who misused their water and ran after pleasures and illicit relationships and lived life a life of decadence, except, of course, for Noah and his family. And because of that, Hashem destroys the world through water. And we said that the Tikkun, uh, the Avot, Yitzchak, and Rivka are the ones who teach us how to use pleasures properly in this world. Yes, Hashem created lots of pleasures. He wants us to use them. He wants us to enjoy His world. But even the permitted pleasures, we have to be careful to not be excessive about. And of course, the forbidden pleasures are ones that can bring us down. So Yitzchak and Sarah Yitzchak, who represents Gevura, discipline, uh, boundaries knowing how to be in control and not be controlled is the one who teaches us or the uh, foundational stone for the Jewish people of how to use water in, in this world and in yourself, in your own makeup. So today we're talking about wind. Wind is the intellectual faculty of man. So as we go up the chain, we're getting to more and more, so to speak, spiritual ethereal levels right we know that the top of the ladder is fire which is the most spiritual of all the elements so here we're talking about movement we're talking about um, wind thought and um, speech right and just to quote from this book called getting to know your soul by rabbi itamar
1: schwartz a rabbi in israel who discusses the four elements. Uh, There's a general principle that
0: each element contains within it the other three. None exists alone. Fire contains wind, water, and earth. Wind contains fire, water, and earth. Water contains fire, wind, and earth. And earth contains fire, wind, and water. Nonetheless, wind is the deepest of the elements. The energy that makes everything else work. The fire destroys, the water sustains, and even the earth gives existence only through the power of movement. Okay, so he goes on with this, which is just very interesting, just to know that without movement, without wind, all the other elements don't function properly. Okay, so in its highest manifestation, wind is the pursuit of truth. It's man's search for meaning and pursuit of truth. It contains within it intellectual honesty, right? The ability to arrive at a conclusion, and even if your body, so to speak, doesn't want to go along with it, because it might be something you don't really want to do, you have enough intellectual honesty to do what you know is right according to absolute truth. And the third part, like we said, it it involves meaningful communication. So the obstacles that get in the way are wasting
1: time, false beliefs, and idle or negative chatter. So...
0: Uh, Interestingly, the Greek philosopher Socrates in the 5th century said the unexamined life is not worth living. And because of his views, he actually um, was given a death sentence for corrupting the youth of his time by getting them to challenge the norm and think for themselves. So this reminds us of Avraham Avinu, who himself we know challenged the norms and thought for himself and was faced with the fiery furnace of Nimrod because of it an expulsion and 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 separation or alienation even from his own family his father himself who was an idol worshipper and sold idols we know that as jews we are also called hebrews and Avraham was the first Hebrew, with the word coming from Avraham Ha'ivri, meaning he crossed over. He stood against the entire world with his beliefs about truth, about God, about the creator, and his expectations of human beings. And we know because of it, life was not easy. So this is the legacy that all of us have inherited from him. He passed this genetic DNA and passion for truth onto his grandson, Yaakov, of course, through Yitzchak, who would become known as the man of truth, Ish-ha, Ish-emes, Ish-emet, right? We know that each of the Avot had a certain trait that they excelled in. Avram was Chesed, Yitzchak was Geburah, and Yaakov was considered the perfect synthesis of chesed and gevurah, which is emes, which is truth. In other words, the proper, um, the shvil hazaha, the golden path. Not too much chesed, not too much gevurah, but the right amount. So this is one way of expressing the idea of, of, of truth. But more than that, we're really going to be talking about the search for truth. And really, this was the war that was taking place at the time of Hanukkah that is coming up in two weeks. We know that the war was not originally a physical war. The Greeks had no desire to annihilate the Jewish people physically. At that time, the Greek wisdom had spread all over the world and people everywhere were happily embracing it, except for one obstinate group of Jews, and not even the majority of Jews, but a small minority of Jews called the Hashmonayim. And they refused to leave their antiquated
1: ways and adopt all of Greek wisdom and lifestyle of the time. In the beginning with Alexander the Great,
0: he was uh, enthralled by the wisdom of the Jewish people and he let us be. But when Antiochus came to power, he wanted us to join up with, with the Greek ways. And he disliked the fact that we would hold on to this idea of there being more than what you see, something above nature, above logic, above the rational mind. This went against Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and the Greek way of life. Hedonism, all kinds of different practices which were immoral, according to Jewish belief, and other things were totally antithetical to the proper Torah way. Now, it's interesting that Greek is allu- the exile, Greek. Greece, sorry, was one of the four exiles that the Jewish people were told at the very beginning of creation. It's alluded to in the words at the beginning of creation in the Chumash that the Jews are going to go through four exiles. We also have the same illusion in the dream of Yaakov and his ladder. The angels are going up and down and up and down a different number of rungs. And the rabbis teach us that these are telling us about the four different exiles, and how long each of them will last. So we know we had a Babylonian exile, there was a Persian exile, then came the Greek exile, and finally the Roman, which is the one that we are still in today. It's the longest one. Yaakov noticed an angel that didn't come down, it just kept going up and up. And this was alluding to the last and most difficult of all exiles, the one we're in today, 2,000 years. But each one has a different name and Greece is called darkness. Darkness hovered over the deep. Darkness is Greece, says the rabbis. Because the Greeks tried to take away our spiritual light. They wanted to eradicate
1: our way of life that was built on the Torah. And let's face
0: it, we embrace wisdom, and the Greeks had a lot of wisdom. The Western world today has many of its traditions from the Greek times, right? Art, philosophy, mathematics, sport, architecture, all of this came from Yavan, from the Greeks. But there was one thing that they were missing, which is why we could not embrace their culture. We say it every morning in the Siddur. Reshit Chachma Yirat Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That wisdom without fear of God is nothing. It says in Pirkei Avot, I didn't get a chance to look it up at three in the morning, but in ein gira right if there's no fear then there's no wisdom fear not meaning fear of god but rather understanding that there is a god recognition of god the understanding that somebody's watching you and it matters what you do that there's a moral conscience that there are absolute truths in the world okay now we had a pasuk in the Torah. One of Noah's sons was named Yefas. Yefas, Yafa means beauty, right? That the Greek people were black, and this is the Greek people. Yephet is Greece. The Torah teaches us, and the, the and Yefet was one of Noah's sons who was rewarded for having proper respect of his father and Noah. And it says there that they're going to be blessed. But it says that the blessing of Yefet, the beauty of Yefet, should dwell in the tents of shame. Shame meaning the Jewish people. And what this Pasuk is teaching us is that there's nothing wrong with beauty and pleasure and art and all of that wonderful thing. All of those wonderful wisdoms. Unless, except for when they are an end in themselves. All of these pleasures in this world, all of these chokmas are meant to be used as a means, a means towards serving God, a means towards coming to love God, a means towards seeing and recognizing God and being his loyal servant. And the Greeks didn't like this because for them, again, there was nothing higher than logic. I always like to quote the poem, An Ode to a Grecian Urn by William Keats. The last line of that poem, which I remember learning in high school, says truth is beauty and beauty is truth. And that is all you need to know. In other words, there is nothing higher than beauty. Beauty is truth. Art is truth. Music is truth. Mathematics is truth
1: but a moral conscience, how to live. This is not in their linguistic wind philosophy. Let me just show you how in the letters itself of the word Yavan, Yavan,
0: Yud Vav, Nun, three lines one small the next one longer the next one longer this is the idea of secular
1: wisdom that has no purpose of being like quicksand it just pulls the person down as opposed to look at this jewish word there's nothing wrong
0: with beauty and truth and wisdom and of course, we should pursue it wherever we can find it. But there has to be a tzaddik in front of it, a purpose.
1: to Make us righteous, to make us God-fearing, to make us recognize where everything comes from. A wind of movement, and it's the deepest element. And just back to that beautiful phrase,
0: everything is in the hands of heaven, we say, except for Yerat Shemayim. And I love what I heard a few months ago. What does that mean? It means everything's in the hands of heaven, except for whether you're going to see God, whether you're going to see God and all of that, everything. That's in your hands. God
1: doesn't force you to see him. He doesn't force you to serve him. That's part of our free will. It's up to
0: you. That's the only thing Hashem leaves in our hands. Everything is in his hands. Every leaf that falls from a tree. Every mishap, every joy, everything that happens in our lives. But whether or not we're going to
1: see him in nature, see him in the events of our lives, that's up to us.
0: So, there was a civil war at that time that many Jews are not aware of between Jew against Jew. Many Jews were becoming misyavnim, Hellenized, more Greek than the Greeks, we're always good at that, right? More Goyish than the Goyish. Listen, you know, it reminds me of a story my uncle used to tell because my father once came to him very excited. They were 10 years apart. And my father came to my uncle and said, I had a victory. Remember the golf club in St. Catharines? They wouldn't let Jews in. And I got us in. I got us into the St. Catharines Golf Club. And my uncle said, oh, Danny, that's terrible. What are you talking about? And there's two versions to the story. But I'll, I'll use my Hanukkah version. So my uncle said to my father, would you leave those poor Goyim alone? He said, everywhere they go, they see you. They see you in the courtroom. They see you in business. Let them have a little peace and quiet on the golf course. They don't have to have you beating them in the golf course and eating their food, their trade food and everything else. Stay away. Anyway, I think we know that Jews are very good at being more Goyish than the Goyim. And the Goyim let us know, if we don't make Kiddush, a rabbi once said, then they make havdalah. They say, we have enough goyim in the world. We want you to be a Jew. We don't need more goyim. We need Jews. Okay. Their collective unconscious understands that we are the ones who are supposed to lead the world to the understanding of God and one God for all human beings. So we all like to think when we read the story of Hanukkah that we would be one of the Hasmonai we would certainly not be a Hellenist. But Dina Schoonmaker, you know, talks about this, that um, we would like to think that we would be one of that minority, those few who fought against the Greeks and stood strong with our principles of the Torah and were determined not to assimilate. But she says the odds are against it because humans have an incredible ability to adapt. And you know, she points to the coronavirus and what we've been living through for the past two years. But in general, human beings are adaptable. And when you are surrounded by certain isms, certain philosophies, certain ways of thinking, as we all know, as Jews living in a Christian world, right? If you ask the average Jew on the street, who, what was Moses's mother's name? They can't answer you, but they know who Jesus's mother's name was, right? And they know when Jesus's birthday was and when he died, but they can't tell you when Moses was because we live in a Christian society. It reminds me of a great joke where Johnny comes home from school one day. Sorry, Sorry, David comes home from school one day and he says to his dad, you know, dad, Johnny told me that there's three gods, the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. And David's Jewish father says to him, well, you go back to school and you tell Johnny that there's only one God and we don't believe in him. Jews have always had a hard time with God. We have cognitive dissonance. After all, we grow up in cultures where They spent their whole religion trying to get rid of us in the name of their God. So God is a very scary concept to us. And since we know so little about our own and so much more about theirs, I had a friend. I think we were four years old. Maybe we were five, but she was my next door neighbor. She was my best friend. I still remember a conversation we had as kids. She was a Baptist, a Bible-thumping Baptist. And very proud uh, and, and knew very proudly that if you converted a Jew, it was a huge thing. And she once told me in our innocence, we had this conversation where she told me that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell. And I need to get saved. And I would like be like, really? Like, you mean, even if I'm good and I, you know, do everything and then, I, I don't know, maybe we were seven by this time and I knew about the Holocaust. And I said, so you mean all those people who were in the Holocaust, they all went to hell. But the people who killed them, who went to church every Sunday, they're all in heaven, right? Because <laughs> they were saved. Anyway, I would just say, I'm sorry. That's, that's a God I cannot believe in. I, I can't buy that, no? And I remember in those days, the Christians had this bumper sticker on the back of their car that said I found it and the Jews came back with a bumper sticker with mug and doves on it that said we never lost it anyway I I thought that was a good I I told my friend Linda that too I said by the way (laughs) anyway um, (laughs) so back to the idea of Dina Schoonmaker Um, she says you know the odds are against us having been Chashmonayim, because really, if we examine our lives even today, having been in Galus now for 2000 years, we have been so indoctrinated, the darkness has infiltrated to the degree that we don't even know what's Jewish and not anymore in terms sometimes of our sensibilities. And, She says that unless a person, there's a a slogan in coaching, decide, don't slide. That a person, the chashmonayim, what made them different is that they had certain standards, certain rules, certain set of morality values, which we all have. And they decided that they're not going to slide. When you decide and don't slide, it means there are certain things that are non-negotiable when it comes to your values and your moral system. You know, I remember one of the rabbis of Chabad up in Thornhill. I remember it was a big brouhaha because he was meeting some of the government people in Toronto and one of them was a woman. And when, you know, the Chabad rabbi was invited to meet with them, he didn't shake the hand of the woman. And they wrote it up in the newspaper. And of course, the Jews thought it was awful. And, you know, the Goyim thought it was terrible and whatever. It was just a big thing. But here was a rabbi whose standard is that no matter how much honor they want to give him, he's not shaking the hand of a woman because that's part of Jewish halacha. And some people, whatever, hold by that very high standard. And he didn't do it. And I remember my husband was speaking at a shua one night. It was late at night. We drove there and it was winter. and It was freezing. And he came out to meet us in the parking lot. And my husband and I came along. And my husband said, oh, Rabbi Mendel, whatever. Did you meet my wife, Devorah? And he said, oh, hello. And I said, uh, you know, I said, hi. I said, I don't have to worry that you're going to shake my hand. (laughs) Anyway, okay, I thought that was funny. Um, Okay. So let's get back to our book that we've been learning from about the elements, Rabbi Shlomo on The Four Elements of an Empowered Life, because it's amazing how Hanukkah fits right into the next episode, the next narrative in the Torah, that it corresponds to the element of wind, which is Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel. Who were these Tower of Babel Jews, right? Or non-Jews, I'm sorry, but they were the, people of the world at that time and they were just like the greeks they built this tower because what their motive was what they put their intellects into and their speech which was unified into was this ideology of let's get rid of god let's build this tower to the sky and somehow we're going to get rid of god okay a few other ideas before I go into it, actually. I, oh, you know what? I'm going to come back to that. Okay, that's a good ending. Okay. so <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So, so the negative manifestation of wind is Babel, right? Great architects and intellectuals who got together to say, come let us build a city and a tower with its head in the sky. And Rashi there tells us, or the rabbis teach
1: us. I better hurry. Um, All the ingredients for greatness were there. The nations were united. They were in a
0: central location. They spoke the holy tongue, Lashen HaKodesh, Hebrew. And if they desired guidance in achieving holiness, they had Noah, Shem, and Avraham, who were living at that time. Instead, as happened so often in human history, they chose to ignore their spiritual advantages and to turn their opportunities for self-aggrandizement and power. And so Nimrod, who was the primary driving force behind this rebellion, they planned to build a tower ascending to heaven and wage war against
1: God. Okay. Okay. Again, wind in its proper manifestation represents intellect and
0: speech and using speech and intellect to search for clarity, to ask questions, to dialogue with those wiser than us. So the avorimahot we said correspond to the correction of each of these episodes, these narratives. And this one corresponds to Yaakov and his two wives, Rachel and Leah. Yaakov also dreams but his is not of a tower of Babel, but of a ladder that reaches from the earth with its feet on the ground and its head in the sky. Only the values and beliefs that have their feet on the ground, meaning that they withstand the test of time, can be said to be true, true for all time, true forever, true through and through. We know that The tower of Babel and the people who built it, they were destroyed. Well, they weren't destroyed physically, but they were destroyed measure for measure, right? The power of wind, which is speech and intellect. God
1: uses the wind, so to speak, to scatter them all over the face of the earth. and. Yaakov, on the other hand, we have an interesting lush on the page, on, on chapter 28, Pasuk 13, where, where after um, Yaakov finishes
0: his dream of the ladder, Hashem says to him, your offspring shall be as the dust of the earth and you shall spread out powerfully westward, eastward northward and southward so the scattering in its negative manifestation of the people who build the tower who are spread apart and are no longer unified and no longer have the same language but are you know babel the word babel means to babble confused speech they're spread out and and yaakov as the Tikun, as the element of wind in its proper way, the Jewish people are spread out all over the earth in a powerful way, in a blessing. Now it's just interesting that in the same place where they built the Tower of Bavel, that's the same place where the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, was created, because Bavel was Bab- Babel, Babylon. So again, you see the remedy of crooked thinking replaced by straight thinking, the Talmud, Talmud Bavli. The ladder that Yaakov dreams of also alludes to Sinai. The letters of the word Sulam, which is ladder, and the letters of the word Sinai, both equal 130. And we know that whenever the numerology is the same, there's a correspondence, there's a similar meaning, there's a message embedded in that. Yaakov represents Torah, right? Yaakov was the man, ohalei yoshfim Ohalim, right? He sat in the tents and the tents refer to the yeshiva of Shem and Avir. There was a yeshiva in the day when Yaakov was alive. Shame, remember Shem, He was one of Noah's sons. The tradition of Torah and of Avraham's Torah was still alive and well, but again, only very few people. We're aware of it and we're not aware of it, but we're moralistically inclined towards it. When we meet ya- 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 Yaakov in his youth, he's an Ishtam, he's Yoshev Ohali. He's morally wholesome, saying what he thinks and never being duplicitous. We're gonna get to what happens later in the story to explain. Titain Ms. Yaakov it says, Give truth to Yaakov. The word emet, just for those of you who never heard this before, the word itself, emet, aleph, mem, taf. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Taf is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And mem is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The word itself, truth, is screaming out. If something's true, it has to be true from beginning to middle to end. All the way through. Or another way that we can look at the word emet. Is the first two letters are the word aim. Which means mother. Where the beginning of life comes from. And the last two letters are the word mate. Death. Death. Right? The beginning and the end of life. All the way through. Also aim always represents chesed kindness and mate represents din the fact that god that death came into the world because of sin so emet is the concept of both joining together we know that god puts emmet sorry chesed and din together and that makes ms okay Avram was chesed yitzchak was din and yaakov was the perfect son having 12 perfect children no Esavs, no Yishmaels, M's. all 12 tribes, all 12 sons became part of the Masora of the Jewish people
1: and didn't go off to become our bitter enemies throughout history. Okay, so much to talk about. I mentioned in a
0: class a few months ago, interestingly, there was a French philosopher who said that even in the English alphabet, you can see that the letters B, C, and D follow each other because B stands for birth, D stands for death, and in the middle, he says, is the C, which, is the, which stands for the, for the word choice, that all of life is determined by the choices that you make. Between birth and death, as the Torah tells us, choose life. Choose Torah. Choose spiritual wisdom. Choose to be part of the Jewish
1: people who continue through history. Choose to be a Hashmonai. Don't choose for the moment. There she is. She joined again. Oh, there you go. Okay, Hi. Hi. Deborah, we don't hear you. You are on mute. <laughs> You're still on mute.
0: We don't hear you. I said, I don't know what happened. I think I was yelling. Yeah, I you. can hear you now. Okay, good. Now we can hear Welcome you. Welcome back. Last few minutes. I think I was getting too fired up. And this is the window the window. <laughs> It's not the fire element, it's the wind. (laughs) We all know that we each have a predominance in one of the elements. We're more dominant in some more than the others, right? I'm a key slave baby, fire. Okay. So do I. Let's talk about happy birthday, key slave babies. Thank you. Oh, hello. Happy
1: birthday, Happy birthday.
0: Oh, that's right. You just had your birthday. yeah Well, well, nice we're gonna to... give, we're gonna give everybody a blessing after i didn't even know my birthday was um, yesterday my hebrew birthday mine was uh, two days ago mazel tov both hebrew and english wow together yeah beautiful beautiful Thank okay God. so we're going back to yaakov isn't it interesting that we say about yaakov hakol kol yaakov the voice is the voice of yaakov before no. we're, we're, we're still waiting to hear what the C meant in the ABC. That's why oh, you got cut off. Really? Yes. All the way back there?
1: Sorry. I was,
0: I was yelling at you guys all yeah. that time for no good reason. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. We, oh. got, we,
0: we got the first two letters, but not the C. Oh, I'm sorry. B is for birth, D is for death, and C is for Choice. Choice. Oh. Because your entire life, your entire life is determined by the choices that you make. And of course, making those choices as Jews is a difficult one. But back to the story of Hanukkah, how many Jewish people assimilated and left the pages of Jewish history at that moment in time, how few went on. You know, Hashem teaches us that there will always be a remnant of the Jewish people, but Throughout history, as we go through history and encounter one ism after the other, one strange and foreign philosophy after the other, that looks more interesting and more glittery and more sparkly than ours. How many just fall to the wayside? How easy it is, right? As I like to say, how do you know when a fish is alive? When it's swimming against the stream, when it's swimming upstream, a dead fish goes with the flow. It takes the easy way. The momentary. And that's what happens over and over again to the Jewish people. And Hanukkah was no different. So, back to the idea of Yaakov and why he is the um, poster child, poster boy, terrible way, whatever, for the um, mastery of the element of wind. We know that Yaakov and his voice play, um, Play, you know, it, it's a famous line in the Torah, HaKol Kol Yaakov, right? When Yaakov comes to his father Yitzchak and he is wanting to deceive him, so to speak, he wants to pretend that he's Esau, Yitzhak is not really tricked because even though Yitzhak feels Asaph and he feels like Asaph he says, you know, the Yedayim, the hands are the hands of Asaph but the call, the voice, and the way you speak is the voice of Yaakov. This is the voice of an elevated person. This is the voice of somebody who sits and learns Torah. This is the voice of somebody who brings their Torah learning to their speech in an elevated way, which is the hallmark of the Jewish people. Hakol Kol Yaakov. The Jewish people know their prayers are heard because they come from such a deep and pure place. Because they've been earned by choosing over and over again to stay with the Jewish people. So... So let's get practical here. So this is about using your speech properly, right? So there's all kinds of ways we can use our speech. You know, we all know the Jewish term yenta, right? So what's a yenta? A yenta is somebody who just goes around talking, a rachil, right? It says, don't be a rachil, a peddler, who goes around selling their wares. Who wants to hear this? Who wants to hear that? Obviously, this is not a high level of speech, We each have to ask ourselves, what are your conversations mostly about? I'm sure you're familiar, I don't know who said it, with the uh, philosophy that great people speak about ideas. Mediocre people or medium people speak about things. My vacation, the food I ate, my renovations. Listen, we all have to speak about that sometimes, right? (laughs) Right. And small people talk about people. Um, You know, there's only two reasons to be talking about other people. An elevated person knows this. One reason is how can I help you? And the second reason is what can I learn from you? You can think of another one. I don't know if there is. Listen, sometimes we have to talk just because we have to clear things or we have to have somebody's ear to help us work through issues with other people. Our our relationships are complicated, but just to talk, to be a yenta, that's not acceptable. Another way we can misuse speech is kfetching. another Jewish pastime. We made up that word, didn't we? As I like to say to my husband, I can be miserable anywhere. No, just kidding. <laughs> what is kvetching? Kvetching shows a lack of a muna, right? If you're fetching, you're not happy. And guess who? We have an example of somebody who kvetched. Yaakov. Yaakov Avinu kvetched. He kvetched Teparo, right? When he's reunited with Yosef and Yosef brings Yaakov to meet his You know, the king, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh asked Yaakov, how old are you? You look really old. How old are you? And Yaakov responds by saying, quote, the days of the years of my sojourns have been 130 years. Few and bad have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not reached the lifespans of my forefathers in the day of their sojourns. So the rabbis point out that because of his fetching, Yaakov lost 33 years of his life. And the 33 years correspond to the 33 words that he spoke that I just read to you, telling Paro that his life was awful. And we know that one of the greatness of tzaddikim and one of the levels that we're all supposed to aspire to, and there's too much to talk about to go into this today, but is the idea of accepting yesurim, accepting difficulties, accepting challenges in our lives, not just accepting them, but accepting them be'ahavah, with love, recognizing that everything Hashem sends us He's sending us with love. The parent who gives a proper patch sometimes comes from love. I'm trying to help you, to guide you, to steer you. Now, of course, this doesn't. some tragedies are so big, we can never understand them. And we can only say that Hashem is good and everything he does is good. And obviously, this is a very high level that even Yaakov Avinu, the Torah, shows us. At that moment, you know, was not on. He was catching and he lost 33 years. We have to be careful what we say. So the ladder of Yaakov is the symbol of using our thoughts, intellect to grow, to examine things anew, to know that there's a truth and that it's available. Even when the world says everything is relative, right? We live in a world of moral relativism. We live in a world with so many isms that we're fighting today the battle continues number one materialism right we have more than our bubbies and great grandparents could ever dream of but we fetch and it's not enough and we don't focus on what we have and everything around us tells us you can't be happy because you don't have this and you don't have that and when you get that it's going to be you're going to be happy right? The power of the imagination that keeps us craving and running after things that are illusions. We have the ism of moral relativism. Anything goes, everything goes. There's no right, there's no wrong. It's all what you think. It's all what you feel. You know, it began definitely in the 70s, 60s, 70s, probably before that.
1: Narcissism, right? My genes,
0: my way, my coffee, my way. I can't eat that potato Kugel. My mother didn't make it. Please, Mom, send me some Kugel up to camp in the Catskills because, ugh. Oh, sure, honey. Okay. <clears throat> Shekher, the word shekher, if you shin, kuf, resh, which means falsehood, right? It doesn't have two legs to stand on. If you look at the word Emet, both legs of the le- Hebrew letters are on the ground. They stand on the line. Truth has a foot to stand on. Sheker has no feet to stand on. Every letter is off the line or under the line or only one foot on the line. Okay. It's not easy to find truth and it's not easy to stay true to your truths. And it doesn't matter whether you were born religious or you had to seek and search for it. Every single person has to choose it or lose it, own it. Make it your own. I like to tell people, you know, you can't continue driving on a gas tank that's empty. There are many Jews who depend on the fact that their great-grandparents were very religious. Or their mother lights candles or somebody eats bagel somewhere, you know, whatever it is, okay, and says, oi, they, you know, my husband was joking. My grandson was like five. He says, oh, we have new neighbors across the street. So my husband said, are they Jewish? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, are they Jewish like you? And he goes, what do you, what, what? And he goes, well, do they say oi? He said, you know, of course, I didn't understand what he meant. You know. I said, ask him if they eat bagels and cream cheese, you know, and anyway, whatever with locks, with locks. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, you know, you can't go on for too many generations on an empty gas tank. You got to fill it up yourself. You got to go to the station and fill it up. You got to figure it out for yourself. And that's what I had to do. You know, I, I like to tell the story. Gosh, I could go on forever. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, when I was a kid sitting around the Shabbos table on Friday nights, my father, who was always said things that were very deep and made you think. Um, But one day, one night, he said, the only Jews who are going to survive are the Jews who don't move the fence. I really wasn't sure what that meant as a kid. But I knew that we probably had moved the fence. So in my mind, I was thinking, so what are you trying to do? Kill us? I mean, I think we moved the fence, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, not really knowing anything about halakha, um, you know, except the halakhas that my father made, up, made, which was, you know, you don't come to, to the Shabbos table dressed in your jeans or you're not coming to dinner, Right. And everybody, you know, shul on Shabbos, you, you had to go, but I thought Shabbos ended at, at lunchtime. I didn't, I, I didn't know it kept going. <laughs> anyway, the, I, the point is, is, you know, another well, argument I'd have with my father is he'd say, you know, tradition, tradition, tradition. So I'd say, listen, if it's just about tradition, then I'm going to choose my own, Okay. You know, relevant to the time we're in right now, I you know I would say I I like Christmas better than Hanukkah. So like, if it's just traditions, why do I have to choose yours, right? As Rav Noah Weinberg used to say, if I was born in communist China, I'd be waving a little red flag. You know, because most people do what their parents did and what everybody else around them is doing, but I was trouble. I was trouble. Anyway, and my father didn't really know what to answer, you know. So I spent a lot of my time searching for answers to life. I couldn't stop asking questions. What am I doing here? Why am I alive? You know, how do I live the best possible life? How do I learn how to think? You know, who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And I talked a lot about truth and relativism. Is there absolute truth? you know, which religion is right, you know, from the time I was little being told I'm going to hell, you know, and worrying about that a little bit, you know, maybe she was right, I don't know, and, you know, even in university, as I've said before, I went to really find out how to think, and university and all of my courses and everything in those days was all about the idea that there is no meaning, there's no meaning and there's no truth, and it's all whatever you need to make up in order to be able to go on. You know, just make it up and live with it. And your truth is different than mine. And what you, as long as you're not hurting anybody, you can do whatever you want. And all of this baloney. Baloney. And it wasn't easy. And I remember even my sister would say, Deb, will you give it up already? There's no answers. There's no answers. Stop banging your head against the wall as the Yiddish expression goes, (laughs) right? Will you just give up and give in? Rev. Noah Weinberg had a great quote. He said, when older people tell you, you'll grow up. What they're really saying is, you'll give up. (laughs) Right? Youth. Are idealistic. They want to change the world. They want to make it better. They challenge the status quo. They say, I'm not just taking this because that's the way everybody does it. Nobody's happy. Nobody's got a smile on their face. They're not living life with intellectual honesty. And, you know, for me, even though I went to shul, I think, till I was 15 or 16. The Torah was a closed book to me. They'd take it out, they'd read it, they parade it around, they'd shake each other's hands a hundred times and put it, back, put it back in the aron. It was such an incredible ceremony of parade, right? But it was like it was a closed book. I had no idea that Judaism had any wisdom at all. The Judaism was th- that I knew intellectually, or spiritually stimulating, it was about, what are you wearing to shul? And what kind of car do you drive there that you park around the corner so God won't see it? (laughs) For any of you who had that kind of upbringing, you know, kind of strange, you know, God, who do I care? Who's going to see my car? I'm more concerned that the rabbi will see my car than that God should see my car. You know, God can't see my car. Anyway, that's the God I don't believe in. Anyway, right? Um, I'm having a good time. I hope you are. So, actually, I was just coaching somebody this week, and she said she used to go to one of the shuls here in Toronto, and she remembers as a kid being totally turned off shul because they were asking for money in shul in the middle of shul, and you know, in her young mind, she was like. What kind of a crazy religion is this? I came here to, to 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 talk to God and to be spiritual, and they're talking about money. And and of course, you know, she was probably. I said you maybe you were worried too, like you know, maybe you didn't have that kind of money, and your parents didn't have that. You know, everybody's giving money, and your parents. Come on, mom. Come on, dad. Come on, do something here. You know, and they're not doing it right. And like Judaism and money, how do you put that together? Right, that's like what in Shul no less going on here this is the most materialistic non-spiritual religion right where you know we tell god what to do he certainly doesn't tell us what to do you know and 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 that's what it is so we all know about the balchuva movement and you know it started in the 60s kids were looking for clarity they were looking for Spiritual wisdom, they were putting on their backpacks and traveling to Israel. I'm reading a book right now about Rav Meir Schuster. Zeher Tzadik Lebracha used to tap young Jewish kids on the shoulder at the hotel and say, hey, would you like to go to Yeshiva? Would you like to meet a wise man? Would you like to learn more about who you are? And he went after people over and over again. He followed you. He, he wrote you letters. He found you at the Tel Aviv station. He found you here. And he was relentless. To the point that when he lost his six-year-old daughter in a terrible accident and she was died tragically, while he was sitting Shiva, he was nervous that he was missing Jews at the kotel who could be turned on to their Judaism. And because he was sitting Shiva, they would slip through his fingers. And he actually asked a Shiloh to one of the great rabbis of the day, whether he'd be allowed to to leave Shiva in the afternoons and go and do his job. And the rabbi, I can't remember if it was Rabbi Eliashev or Rav Steinman, said, I can't say yes because people will not understand you're doing such a thing. But I want to come to the shiva of such a person who cares so deeply for the Jewish people that he can't sit still at his own daughter's shiva because of the worry that there are Jews who are walking away from their Judaism and will be swept away,
1: right, as so many Jews are through our march through time and through history. And of course, you know, the Baltuva
0: movement was happening at a time of anarchy where all morals, all social conventions were being destroyed by the hippie movement, right? You don't want to, you know, bear your story to the world, then you're repressed. You don't know how to, you know, burn your bra, then you're repressed, right? You, you know, if you're modest, you're repressed. If you don't let it all hang out, you have low self-esteem, right? All kinds of truths that are totally antithetical to truth, to Jewish thinking, right? If you've got it, flaunted, All kinds of messages that society teaches. Look out for number one. Nice guys finish last. You are what you own. If you don't consciously question and fight against these messages, you become part of it. It's called groupthink.
1: It's called adaptation. It's called Hellenism. To be a a Balchuba, to be an independent thinker,
0: to be part of a nation that is an ambodad, badad, a nation that stands alone, you have to be a rebel. You have to stand against convention, against the other side. You have to be an ivory. You have to fight for the truth. Rav Noach Weinberg also Zatzal said, "Don't be Don't be afraid." He would tell these young people to discover that the real you may be different than the current you. It takes courage. It takes courage to upset your whole concept of yourself,
1: and a willingness to be unpopular even within your own family. Who do you think you are? You can't change. You can't do things differently than the way you grew
0: up. This is the way we've done it. This is the way we do it. You've lost your mind. Absolutely crazy. When are you going to get a job and grow up and stop looking for truth? What a bunch of baloney, right? My father would say to me, I'm going to go find myself, okay? I'm going to leave the wife and kids, and I'm going to go find myself. <laughs> Baloney. And he would even say on Yom Kippur about me, he would, he would read from, you know, Unasanatoka, who will this, who will that, who will this, who will that. And he would say, who will wander, Deborah, who will wander? And then I read this wonderful quote: "All who wander are not lost." <laughs> I didn't read it. I read it recently, but I would have answered him that way. He always loved a good debate. He was a lawyer, and I was his best debater. Um, and he was intellectually honest. When I when I said something, he said, "Uh huh, that's a good one. That's yeah, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, right." <laughs> Rav Noah Weinberg also was famous for saying, know what you would die for and then live for it. Whatever you give up your life for, that's what you should be living for. Jews have given up their lives throughout history for the belief in one God, for the belief in Torah, for the moral sense of justice and fairness and goodness and kindness and all of the ideals and values of Judaism. Thomas Cahill wrote a book, The Gift of the Jews, and all the great thinkers understood that without the Jewish people, this would be a very different world. We'd still be beasts. We'd still be pagans. We'd be uncivilized.
1: And and even with the Jews, people have the free choice to go that way. Right? Okay, I'm going to end in a minute. So
0: Torah provides all the answers and Torah believes in absolute truth, truth that does not change based on how you feel, where you live, what culture you come from, which society you're in, what the latest trend is. Jews fell for communism. They fell for Marxism. Today, we have something called humanistic Judaism, right? Oh, we Jews, we know how to do Tikkun Olam, you know? I know how to be good. You don't have to, I don't need God. I'm a human. Just being human makes me a mensch. Well, humanistic Judaism, you make up the rules. You can also break the rules, right? And if you know there's a good business deal and nobody will see, and yeah, it's a little bit corrupt, but there's no God anyway. It's just about humanistic Judaism. What's to prevent me? Or, you know, if somebody makes a pass at me, and my marriage isn't so good anyway, and it's pretty flattering that this male or female likes me, and, you know, nobody's around, what's to stop me? The story of Avraham and Avimelech, when he took Sarah, and he found out that Avraham lied and said that he's her brother. And he says, why did you lie to me? Why didn't you just say that you're her husband? And Avram, of course, says to him, because if I had said I was you know, her husband, you would have killed me and taken her. My brother, okay, you gave me a lot of gifts. And Abimelech said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. And Avram says to him, yes, you would, because Ain Hashem there is no fear of God in this place. There is nobody watching you in your mind. You're not accountable to anybody or anything. As long as nobody sees me, as Rav Yisrael said, I wish that my fear of God, no, he blessed his students, he said, your fear of God should be as great as your fear of other people. <laughs> and they said, only that much? And he said, halavai, halavai, that you should have as much fear of God as you have of what other people think. This is how we realign ourselves with truth, It's all there for us. The Torah is an open book. It's there for us. Rabbi Buxcom in his book says, you know, so I just wanted to say, and I know I'm going over, but even people who are born religious, born with Torah, and of course, they begin life on a very much higher elevated level than the rest of humanity. And they're very good people, many of them. And they have proper values but we live in a porous society. We can't help but be influenced by this long exile and the societies that are all around us, right? And the way that people behave around us. So we always have to have our GPS. I can't remember what Lord platnick calls that, but our God something. Um, but anyway, we always have to be recalculating, right? Make sure that we're living what we believe and we're behaving. We're deciding and not sliding. We're spending our money in a way that's in alignment with Torah values. And then of course, non-religious people who don't grow up, Jewish people who grow up like kidnapped Gentiles is the halachic um, understanding. That today most Jews are like tinok shanishba, kidnapped Gentile, sorry, kidnapped children who were raised in a non-Jewish environment and don't know, really don't know. Most people don't ask questions, and when they do, and they don't get the answers, they give up. They grow up and give up. But Judaism encourages questions. Where was Hashem during the Holocaust? When you, if you ask those questions, even in Beis Yaakov, you know, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, I was told you were shut down. You weren't allowed to ask those kind of questions. Questioning God was a problem. Today, hopefully, everything is more open. Hashem wants us to ask why do bad things happen to good people. Where was God during whatever? All of these questions, this is how we grow and we learn. So we need to be, you need to be a rebel to push back, to open up questions and realize, and this is another big chiddish I have, that if God gave me a brain, if God created me, and he gave me a brain that asks and says, why, what, teach me, tell me, and then he says, nah, na na nah, nah, there are no answers, I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> like, What? That is the most cruel thing anybody could do. I don't want to believe in a God that's so cruel. He gave me this intelligent brain that looks around and says, what am I here for? What is that? What am I doing here? Why do I die? Why did you born me? What is this all about? Right? I just want to say that when I went to university, I took some courses in Jewish history and all kinds of things, but One of the things that I came to, one of the truths that I understood based on Jewish history and the incredible miraculous survival of the Jewish people when every great empire has wanted to destroy us physically, spiritually, whatever. And the great anti-Semites, we had a book on all the great anti-Semites of the world, the most brilliant people writers artists philosophers thinkers musicians wagner i can't dostoyevsky jew haters but the greatest artists thinkers right contributors to to the wisdom of the world of mankind and i deduced that if there's any truth to be had in this world Any truth to be found in this world, it has to reside with the Jewish people because we make no sense, because we are indestructible, as is God, because we are above the laws of nature. As Tolstoy, a non-Jewish, sorry, Toynbee, a non-Jewish historian said, the Jewish people defy the laws of history. They defy the laws of logic and nature. They should not be here. If any truth exists in this world, it has to be embedded within the Jewish story. And that's what I discovered to be true. Which goes back, obviously, to our Torah. It's a Torah of truth, right? It's a tree of life, Taurus emes, to those who hang on to it for dear life. Okay, I just want to end. I probably said that already. Now, well, how can I end without telling you that Yaakov, who was called the Ish-emes, this is Marlene's question, is the one that we learn to be tricky and sinister and sly from. He's the one that comes to his father Yitzchak and pretends to be somebody that he's not. Now, Yaakov was Ishtam. He didn't want to do this. His mother, his mother Rachel, tells him to do this, and he doesn't want to. But he listens to his mother and he knows, remember, fair and square, Asav sold him the bechor. Yaakov gave him the soup in exchange for the bechor, in exchange for that blessing that Yaakov had to go in and pretend he was Esav to get. But he wasn't being duplicitous because that was his bracha. Asa sold it for a bowl of soup, which revealed what R- Riftah, sorry, already knew, that it meant nothing to Asa, and that Asa was not going to be the continuation of the Jewish people, just like Ishmael was not. But it's a very interesting idea that Rabbi Buxbaum says that when Yitzchak says, Hakol kol ya'akov, the voice is the voice of Jacob, Yitzchak is saying, I know this is Jacob. I know he's dressed up as Esau, but this is really Jacob. And Yitzchak knew very well who Esau was and all of his bad traits. And who Yitzchak was, his son who sat in the tents and learned Torah. And he knew and he trusted that if Yaakov was dressed up as Esau to get this bracha, he trusted that Yaakov was doing this for the right reason and for a good reason. He recognized the voice. Okay. Last thing I want to say is that Yaakov, after he battles the evil Asab, right? The angel of Asab, the Malach of Asab, his name is changed from Yaakov, right? The one who grabbed. Yaakov from the word who grabbed the heel of his brother Asa. No, I'm the firstborn. You're not going to get the firstborn I, right? As he's coming out of the womb. Yaakov's name is changed to Yisrael. If you change the letters of the name Yisrael around, you get the letters rosh Lee. My head is mine. We're called B'nai Yisrael. children of Yaakov who became Yisrael. Yisrael is a higher level elevated name for the Jewish people. It's teaching us that the element of wind is connected to our thoughts, it's connected to our pursuit and love of truth and our search for it, constantly refining it, constantly going back to our Torah which is what Yaakov represents and making sure that we Keep our Jewish mind and our Jewish beliefs and values and live by them intact. And don't fall to the isms that are all around us. Many more isms that I could talk about, you know? When I was on kibbutz in Israel, I became a pantheist. You know what pantheism is? God is nature and nature is God. And that is all you need to know. Right. And this God of nature that I worship doesn't ask anything of me, nothing of morality, nothing about anything I have to do. Very, very convenient type of belief. God is nature and nature is God. That is all you need to know. And I just want to end on the other ism that unfortunately failed the Jewish people miserably. And that is the ism of Zionism, secular Zionism. And when I was thinking about this last night at three in the morning, I was thinking about my uncle, Rabbi Monson, his neshama should be blessed, who did a lot Amen. of good in the world. And Amen. he was a great Zionist, and he was a great religious Zionist, even. And when I was, uh, you know, part when we were rabbi and rabbitsoning at Clanton Park between rabbis there, One of the congregants there kept telling me, you know, I have an article from your uncle that I've kept for 50 years. I want to bring it over. I want to give it to you. Susan, if you're listening and you're going to listen. And anyway, it was the most interesting article. You know what he wrote? If I had it, I'd pull it out right now. My uncle, who was a real Zionist, and Israel was everything to him. And you know, I, it goes back in my family. My father told me that my great-grandfather was in Basel, Switzerland with Theodore Herzl. They were called Zion, religious Jews who were thirsting to go to the land of Israel, so you know it, it, it's in my blood. But in the meantime, what drove my uncle crazy, and all of us choose here? Remember, when there started to be your dean, Israelis who were leaving Israel. Can you imagine thousands of years we've been praying for Israel and these Jews who were fortunate enough to be born there or get there or be allowed in there or escape the Germans there or whatever and survive there, they're all leaving. What's going on? We're coming. We're supposed to be coming. They're leaving. Do you know that in this article, my uncle was raising money that any Israeli living in Toronto has a free ticket back. I'm giving you a free ticket back to Israel. I wish I could read you the words. It's unbelievable. I had no idea this was one of his. I'm, how could you leave? How could you leave? But you know what? Secular Zionism doesn't teach Jewish people what they're doing in Israel why should I give up my life for this country why should I give up my life to be a Jew today in this modern world where I can go anywhere and live as a Jew or live the way I want to live and that's why secular Zionism failed even in the in the secular schools of Israel maybe now it's getting better they never taught them about the religious reasons for why living in Israel is a gift and a blessing and a present and a holy and and the only place that we'll be able to actualize ourselves as a nation and as individuals. And that eventually every Jew will wanna be there. This is never taught. And so of course, why should I give up my life for this country? when I could live anywhere else in the world today. And so my, my uncle was willing to send every Israeli back on a free ticket, right? But you know, to me that just represents the failure of secular Zionism. You know, I used to joke when I was a kid, even if Israel was in Buffalo and I lived in St. Catharines, we'd still have a million reasons for not why, going there for not why I'm not, why I'm not living there. And I'll tell you, I was proved right because I spent some time in Greece and I hung around Greek Jews. I actually ended up, whatever, living in this hotel that was owned by this wealthy, wealthy Greek Jewish family. And I became friendly with with a daughter. And she would whine to me and commiserate that she wants to make Aliyah to Israel, which is an hour away. And her parents even sent her to Zionist camps in Greece. Okay. And they forbade it. Absolutely not. Are you crazy? Even though a lot of these Greek Jews went to fight also in the Yom Kippur War, they they ran there just like the Jews in America and Canada. But God forbid you should live there. What kind of standard of living are you going to have there compared to what we have here? You want your kids to go to the army? What? Are you crazy? Anyway, the point is, is... uh, even if it was in Buffalo, we'd have a lot of reasons for not getting there. And that's, anyway, thank you for listening. Times have not changed much since the times of Hanukkah. We have to decide and not slide. We have to know what we're living, know what we would die for and live for it. You don't want to grow up. We want to continue to read and examine life is the only life worth living. And we need to continue to always be refining and asking ourselves, am I living the life I'm supposed to be living? Is the wind element my thoughts, which come in and out of my mind, my ability to think, is it being used on the highest manifestation? Or is it full of all kinds of things that pull me down and, and um, get in the way of my fulfilling and um, manifesting my greatest self